Well, let's take our Bibles. Let's locate Ephesians chapter 2. In fact, go ahead and put a finger on verse 19. This will be our 14th week in this series, Union with Christ. We're going to analyze four verses this morning. In these four verses, you're going to see two very plain and clear in Christ references. We'll be looking at those. They will be especially targeted and related to um, the church and how God builds us together in Christ. In fact, I see these four verses really as uh, a, a set of links, um, each one serving to connect to another one, and they, they form really a singular thought. So each verse is kind of a link, but when we're all said and done, there's this singular thought, this singular chain of thought, we'll call it. And here's this singular chain of thought this morning. I'm going to give it to you up front, and I want you to watch it kind of bubble up through every verse. I want you to kind of watch it emerge and surface and rise so that by the time we're done, you can say, oh, I see this loud and clear. Here's really what we're going after this morning, that in Christ, we are one people of God by God and for God. Will you say that with me? In Christ, we are one people of God, by God, and for God. That's the singular chain of truth we're going to see. So let's begin in verse 19. Follow along with me as I read these four verses for us. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, hallelujah, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and you're members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Here's our first in Christ reference in this section. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Here's our second in Christ reference. In him you are also being built together. And I would circle the phrase being built together, draw it back to the word grows in verse 21, a similar synonymous thought. Both of these are happening in Christ. So he says in him, you're being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. Four verses, I think we'll look at them as four links that form a singular chain of thought. The first verse really talks to us uh, on the heels of two words, and it's the words, so then. Do you see that there? In other words, in light of, or as a result of, or because of, and what's he saying, that, uh, what he's saying is, is coming on the heels, basically, of the fact that Christ killed hostility, the fact that Christ gave us access, the fact that Christ came and preached peace, he was our peace, all of these mean something. So what is the result of all of this work that Christ has done, described in about 11 through 18. Here's what he says. So then, or as a result, first of all, our fellowship is in Christ. Notice what he says. We're not strangers and aliens, but we're fellow citizens. We're members of the household. He, 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 he says clearly that God's people are not known by what separates them, but we're known by what unites us. And I would rather re, I would instead reword that to say we're not known by what separates us. We're known by who unites us, and it is Christ. So our fellowship is in Christ. That's his first link here. 
Now notice something. He says we are not something and he says we are something. So eyes on the book, look what he says here. We are not strangers and aliens. Those are words or terms or labels that indicate uh, you know, separation, disconnectedness, uh, distance. They speak of things that, that don't belong, an outsider. He says, we're not that. He says, here's what we are. Fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. These are words that actually indicate the opposite. Insideness, connectedness, closeness, no separation. This is what God has done in Christ. He has brought us together. Now, notice what's not in this list. I'm going to spend most of my time probably within this first link. I'll cover the remaining three links somewhat quickly, I think. That was somewhat humorous there. Supposed to be at least, right? <laughs> notice what's not in this list of what we call human identifiers. In a study group a few weeks ago, we were analyzing this text, and we noticed that these human identifiers are not in here, such as um, origin, ancestry, Culture, color, tradition, past, profession, all the things that we typically use to mark us, to kind of be known, they're not mentioned here as unifiers. What is mentioned is Christ. And so I would say to you boldly and quite clearly, the church should not use human identifiers to primarily mark us or to bring us into unity. We should instead realize we have been brought into unity by one person, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And that's the bond that we share. In fact, look at the words. These are relational terms. They're, they're really kingdom concepts such as fellow citizens, household members. He doesn't use social construct words. He doesn't use demographic labels. He uses family words. And it's to draw our attention to this, that, it's, that it's, it's Christ who makes us one, not all the other things that make us different. And what the culture and society wants to do is draw your attention to all the things that make you different. But in the church, we should have the courage and the commitment and the conviction to say, hey, we want to see the one person who makes us one. It's Christ. And church, listen very carefully. Let me lean in here. This is one area we can be so radically distinct and different in the current culture's climate. I mean, when so much of our nation, when so much of the world is gripped, and I would say even paralyzed by culture and color, the church can stand out as one marked by unity because of Christ when man-made labels want to segment us, God's people should allow the singular idea of the gospel to brand us as one in Christ. Yes, we recognize our differences. We know they exist, but we do not prioritize them, nor do we weaponize them to get our way. Instead, we prioritize and focus on Christ's work on all of our behalf, his saving and sustaining work, and we make that our priority. Colossians 3.11 says this, 
In Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, circumcised nor uncircumcised, bond nor free. It's exactly what Parker discussed last week. Those things aren't the labels that we wear. We wear one label. Christ is all and in all. In fact, all the differentiating human identifiers that, that our culture tries to promote, that's actually the hostility that Christ killed on the cross. All of our ethnicity, all of our employment, all of our experiences, all of our economics, all the things that we think make us who we are and that actually sometimes bring division. Christ killed that hostility and he has brought us together. So as a church, we should follow suit and focus on the one who has made us one. I mean, church, hear this loud and clear. You people, this place, and I don't mean building, old warehouse. I mean this place as when you are gathered, you are the place. You are a haven for me, for the person next to you, behind you, in front of you. You realize that all week long, you tick the boxes of all the ways you are different. That's what you're doing all week. And yet when you walk in these doors and you gather with these people, it should be, hey, here's what we have in common. It shouldn't matter what your background is, what your color is, what culture you come from, what your address is, your income, what you drive. I mean, the first thing I see when you walk in those doors, and most mornings I'm back there just greeting and saying, hey, is, hey here's a fellow brother or sister who took their stand on the level ground of the cross. Welcome to the family. Man, it's a haven in a world where all they want to do is keep calling out all the ways you're different. Here's the one place when we gather where we see we're, how we're so much alike. I love the church, don't you? You see, church, you are my spiritual brother and sister. The person next to you, in front of you, behind you, you are their spiritual brother or sister. That's our defining factor. That is our connecting link. And that's why in a church, even with all kinds of different people, we can fellowship sweetly and in unity because we are in Christ. Now, now watch this. That does not mean that we're colorblind. It does not mean we're culture blind. But neither does it mean we're color bound or culture bound. It doesn't mean that we're past blind or profession blind. We recognize differences, but it does not mean that we're past bound or profession bound. Do you hear what I'm saying? We know that differences exist, but we don't say that's all that makes us who we are. We know there's something greater and better and bigger and larger and more powerful than all of those human ID markers. It is the Son of God, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who has made us one. And in this current culture climate, man, a church that's standing on and shining forth about its unity in Christ and not trying to make the biggest deal about all of our differences would be a welcome sight, wouldn't it? May we be that kind of church? We're not colorblind, but we're not colorbound. We're not culture-blind, we're not culture-bound. We are Christ-bound. We are gospel-bound. And on that, we will fellowship. 
You see, I'm convinced more and more, and especially this week, that this place right here, you people, you are a spiritual refuge in the middle of a cultural wreck. And I love meeting with you and gathering with you and fellowshipping sweetly under one banner, the banner of our King, Jesus Christ. So Paul establishes that we have one fellowship, it's in Christ, we have one identity, one bond. And then he moves in verse 20 now to discuss where this one body, this one group stands. He talks about our foundation next. Look at verse 20 in which he says that we're on one foundation. It's the foundation of the apostles and prophets and the cornerstone of that foundation is Christ. So we can say this, our foundation's in Christ or we have one base, just as we have one bond, we have one base, we have one footing. And notice something he says in this verse. He says that this is something that has occurred in the past. It has been built. Do you notice that? You'll notice in the next two verses, there's a present tense going on. God through Christ is doing something, but here he's already done something. He has built the church, his people on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ being the cornerstone. So what's going on here? What's happened in the past to, to make this a reality? I think what he's referring to here really is God's progressive plan to bring about his united church filled with both Jews and Gentiles. And of course, that is every single person. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. So that's everybody, right? And he's saying his church includes all those who have trusted in Christ regardless of their ethnicity or employment or experience or economics. And you could list whatever other labels you want. He's saying here that church, that people's been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. He didn't say that it's built on the, the foundation that the apostles laid. Notice that he doesn't say that. He actually says that the apostles and prophets are the foundation. I think it's a very good translation to say that this foundation consists of the apostles and prophets. Now, what does he mean by that? I think he's referring to the work primarily done from Pentecost and in the early days of the church. In those 12 apostles, you could say 13 with Paul. By the way, there were other apostles it just simply means sent one who were not in the office of apostle as in those 12 or 13. Those 12 or 13 were the ones responsible primarily for the writing of scripture under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They were accompanied with New Testament prophets. Now, I do think the word prophets here can include Old Testament prophets. I think perhaps there's an allusion to that. There was predictions in the Old Testament of God's work among his people in bringing them together. So I don't think it means you... It doesn't exclude them, but I would say to you in all honesty, I think the phrase apostles and prophets here primarily refers to those people involved in the early beginnings of the church. I think the word order would lean that way as well. It's apostles and prophets. They were instrumental in, in forming the church. God used them to deliver the written word and then build his church upon them. And of course, the Bible then says next that they were, of course, aligned to and in connection to Christ being the cornerstone. So picture a building and they're, they're constructing it, but they've got to have a guide, a point in which to align everything. That's what a cornerstone did in ancient building practices. You would set the cornerstone and if you were in line with that on all sides, you would be assured that the rest of the building would be lined up properly. And so he's saying here, Christ is the cornerstone, his work 
for us in his death and resurrection, his life for us, all those things. That's the, that's the uh, parameter. That's the guide. That's the alignment. And so we line up the apostles and prophets with that. And then those who come after those, we line up with that. So to every true believer, we line up on and in with Christ. He's the cornerstone. We follow those who've come before us, the apostles and prophets, who gave once and for all through the scriptures the faith delivered to the saints, Jude verse 3. So what you're seeing here is that Christ laid a foundation and all those who are coming after it are standing on that. And he is the cornerstone of that foundation, making sure everything's aligned and perfectly in congruence. That's the foundation we stand on. I find that to be very comforting. You know why? Because that means I don't have to make something up to tell you guys. <laughs> I don't have to think of some really great sermon next week. I don't have to find some clever technique or a new method. I've just got to come to you in the same footsteps that our church fathers have walked in since the time of Christ. I've just got to preach to you the, the, the good news, the same old story. We'll understand it. We'll break it apart. We'll digest it. We'll eat it. We'll love it. But man, the pressure's off when it comes to being a pastor. We're not inventing something. We're not making something up. We just gotta be faithful to deliver the message to the next generation and make sure it's in line with the cornerstone and on the right foundation. So we stand as one in Christ on Christ. As we're standing, God is also continuing to build that structure. He talks about this next when he talks about our formation is in Christ. Look at verse 21. Here he says this whole structure, it's being joined together. That's a present tense type of word there, isn't it? Being joined together and growing into a holy temple. So here's a present tense activity of God through Christ. The verse says this happens in Christ. So God is forming his church. So we have one source for growth and development, and it's Christ. So notice the, the trajectory here. Notice the links. We, are, we have one bond. We have one base. We have one source. You see it happening. Our, our fellowship, our foundation, our formation, all of this is in Christ. One identity, uh, one family. Here we have one formation and one source for that. And it's Christ. Now, I think it's interesting that in, the, in this present tense concept, there is a mixed metaphor. Are you catching it? He talks about a building, right? A structure that's joined together. But then he throws in this word grow. I, I rarely talk about buildings growing. Perhaps at times, but for the most part, we say expand or build out, I'm not sure what to use, but we usually use the word grow with something that's living. And I think this is precisely Paul's point. He knows that it is a structure. God is building something. Peter would call us living stones. So there, it's right to call it a structure, but he knows it's a living organism. It's a living structure. It's not just an organization. Are there organizational aspects? Yes. And I say, I say that to you biblically. There are offices within the living structure of the church, elder and deacon. So, so we don't shy away from organizational aspects. But at the core of the church is a living, it's a living, breathing body of whom Christ is the head. And here this verse says, 
Christ is most assuredly the one who sources its formation. So what is meant here? Is he saying that individuals are growing deeper because of Christ in this body? Well, I wouldn't deny that, but I don't think that's what he's saying here. Do you know that? I don't think you can take this as a personal way to say, okay, I'm gonna grow in Christ. I think you should grow in Christ and he's the source for that. But this verse is really a plural corporate verse. In fact, in this entire section, even back to verse 11, you have many plural pronouns. Most of them are, are you in the plural sense, speaking to the church at large. And here he's saying that the church will expand. It will grow in its reach because of Christ. And this really fits the parables about the kingdom of God that Christ shared in the New Testament. I think in Mark 4 especially, in which Christ said the kingdom of God or the people of God or the place where God's rule is seen and felt, it's like this, this, this tree that grows and eventually the birds of the air find their nest in it. Most commentators believe that the birds of the air refer to other nations who come into the kingdom of God. And they find a home there. When, when every other place perhaps is peculiar, off limits, when you're considered an outsider, the kingdom of God, the work of Christ is actually open to every nation, language, tribe, and tongue. And so the kingdom of God starts small, yes, but it grows. And eventually people from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue find a home in the kingdom of God through the work of Christ. I love what's happening here. This is only done by Christ and, and reasonably so because he's the owner of it. So it not only fits the parables of the kingdom of God, it fits the words of Christ in which he said, I will build my church. He didn't say the elders would. He didn't say pastors would. He didn't say preachers would. He didn't say members would, small groups, music. Christ definitively, authoritatively, distinctively, exclusively said, I will build my church. So its formation is continued, and I like the word, it's continued expansion or its continued growth is by Christ. And I don't mean growth there numerically either. So I don't think you can take this verse to mean individual growth per se, nor numerical growth. It simply means that there is no person or language group or ethnicity to which the kingdom of God, to which the church cannot reach. All are invited to be part of this household through Christ. Man, that's a comforting thought too, isn't it? That when most folks around you Again, I want you to check the boxes and show how different you are. Here's one place that says, hey, we just want to know one thing. Do you believe that Christ is God's son, that he died, that he rose again? And if we can gather around that banner, wow, we're in the family together. Christ is continuing to form, to expand, to grow his church through that message. With that thought in mind, keep, keep this kind of in front of you as well. This uh, it fits the parables of the kingdom, but also fits the parables of those who sow news about the kingdom. You know, I don't think a single farmer thinks he actually grows the seed. I got Todd Robrand, there's an ag guy. Edgar's in the building somewhere. They're ag guys. No farmer thinks they grow the seed. They sow the seed. They tend the soil. They work with conditions and they reap a harvest. They may uh, you know, pay attention to the little shoots, but 
there's no farmer anywhere, a legitimate farmer, that thinks they actually grow the seed. They don't. And the same thing is true in church. We don't grow the church. We tend to the soil. We work with the environment, uh, the little shoots. We reap the harvest. But guess who grows the church? Guess who grows the seed? It's Christ. He is our singular source. And it makes sense now why Paul would instruct every church that he planted throughout the book of Acts to preach Christ crucified. We preach a message the world considers foolishness. But why? Because it's the message of power. There's no power in my opinions or yours. The power is in the gospel. So every church we plant, this church, man, we want to be gospel-centered, Christ-proclaiming. We'll be unashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation. Amen, church? That's the source for all growth. That's our formation. It's in Christ. As that continues to happen, he says in verse 22, here's the eventual result. And it's an eventual result in that we'll see it played out perfectly one day, but it is currently happening. He says we will be a dwelling place for God. Here's our function in Christ. I love this phrase because it shows us there is one result. Here's the ultimate aim of God founding his church giving all those who stand on that foundation sweet fellowship in Christ and forming them by expanding it to reach every single person who believes, the result is that there, this, this group becomes a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What a unique privilege that is for God's people to be a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see, church, understand this. We don't meet in a building. We meet as a building. You don't meet in a temple. You meet as a temple. God's temple. God's building. You say, well, how is God here, Todd? We've all gathered. How is he here? Well, the verse says, by his spirit. So his spirit is present when his people gather. Now, let me just talk to you a bit about that phrase. Because I think, and I've done this personally. I'm, I'm guilty of this. And I'm trying to adjust the way I think about it. I think we've overemphasized the individual aspect of being a temple of the Holy Spirit to the unintended exclusion of the corporate body being the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, I, I'm not saying I don't think your body's a temple of the Spirit. It is. 1 Corinthians 6 says that, but I would remind you, 1 Corinthians 6 as well, the pronouns there, the, the word you that's mentioned is Plural. So I think he's saying you and your bodies, they're temples, yes. But I think he's also saying your body, as in the corporate body of Christ, is a temple. This will lean into that as well as Peter when he says that we are being built into a holy temple. We're living stones. You see, the ultimate aim is for God to dwell with his people. He is doing that. He'll do that perfectly, um, uh, ultimately, of course, when his kingdom comes and he resides with us, not just in a a viable way as he is now, but in a visible way. You see, this has been a consistent theme throughout Scripture. I was noticing this week. It begins in Exodus, and the last mention is Revelation 21.3, in which you find this phrase, you will be my people, and I will be your God. You ought to track that phrase through the Scriptures. 
you'll find that God's intent and aim is to gather together a people to himself and to dwell among them. He will be their God and they will be his people. In the Old Testament, it was in the tabernacle and then the temple. And then, of course, he did that through Christ, the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament prophecies and predictions. Now, Christ is gone. He's left the church filled with the Holy Spirit. One day, Christ will return. He'll establish his kingdom that we are awaiting for. He'll reign visibly, presently, universally, globally. He will be among his people. This is what God is doing. So church, do not underestimate the value of the gathering. You're actually gathering as a temple for God. Now, with that in mind, let me make an, a, a pastoral appeal to those who aren't here. I'll be very gentle here, but I want to be very clear. I know there are folks who are watching and listening, and because of the pandemic and other reasons, you cannot be here. The truth is, for those of you who are in that condition, you weren't here before the pandemic. You're what we call shut-in or homebound. Those are legitimate cases, right, church? Illnesses, um, uh, mobility, we understand that. In fact, we started our live stream uh, just a few years after we began, I think around 2008 or nine, we began live streaming and it was horrendous, by the way. <laughs> but we began doing that back then because there were young moms who had children who couldn't attend because they were sick. We had elderly folks who were sick and couldn't attend or some couldn't attend at all. We wanted them to participate in their small groups. And so we, would, we just began live streaming back then and it was very primitive because we wanted those who could not attend to have some access to what's happening in the larger gathering and to participate in a small gathering somehow. It was, it was kind of a safety net measure. But can I just be very frank with you as your pastor? There are many, because of the pandemic, who are not returning and it's not for legitimate reasons. The pandemic, for some reason, has caused them to prioritize fear over faithfulness and to consider perhaps their safety as more important or I should say a version of their safety as more important than God's values. And so I just want to speak to those who are watching and listening. And in a humble but very pastoral manner, I would ask you to return to God's dwelling place. Yes, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, but there's something uniquely and distinctly scriptural about God's people gathering. And then he meets with them in a manifest way especially through spiritual gifts. And if you're not with the body, able to see the Spirit give you gifts to use when the body gathers so that God is glorified, that's, that's a, that, that continues. That's a persistent problem. That's a persistent perspective problem. And I just want to humbly call anyone who's listening or watching who perhaps, and I can say this honestly, just unintentionally, you've kind of given in to some fear. Maybe the, the cultural expectations. And you're missing the body. We're missing you. And we, we want to know, hey, would you take your place as a living stone among the dwelling place of God? I don't say that in an arrogant way or as a way to um, be presumptuous at all. I just want to be pastorally responsible. You know, Paul said, Six times in 1 Corinthians 11 through 14, the church was to come together. And when you read this text, the, the sense is that this describes not just who we are, we're a dwelling place for God. It describes what we do. We meet. 
so that God dwells with us in a corporate fashion, not just individually. Yes, he resides in us that way with the Holy Spirit. Yes, but corporately, communally, collectively, there is a thing called the temple, the building, and it's God's people and he dwells among them. This is exactly why Paul would say that often in Corinth, when they would gather together, the spirit would be with them, the gifts would be expressed and seen, and then those who weren't believers would look at that and they would say, truly, God is among you. That's not happening if you're just individually out in the city. That happens when you gather together and God's spirit pervades and empowers and then people see it and they say, wow, God is dwelling there. So I hope you hear me humbly. I'm trying to say this humbly. I'm praying that the value of the gathered church will rise within this body of believers in a noticeable way to our community. Because I, I believe still we can be faithful and careful. We can do both. And perhaps we need to continue doing that. That's great. Let's not exchange one for the other. You see, this is what this text does for us. It really heightens our appreciation of and deepens our value of God's body, the church. That we are one fellowship because of Christ. Built on one foundation being formed by one person, Christ, for one function, to be a dwelling place for God. So do you see the, the main chain of truth emerging? Have you seen it bubble up? Let's say it again, can we church? In Christ, we are one people of God, by God, and for God. I mean, first and foremost, in a very real sense, we are a vertical church. I know that name's been used by different music groups and other congregations, but in the, in the truest sense of the word, this is what every church should be. Eyes heavenward, it's gaze vertical because we have been purchased by God. We belong to God. We are empowered by God. We're formed by God. We're founded by God. All of this is a vertical situation. And your appreciation of and value for the church will be directly proportionate to how well you embrace and hold on to this singular chain of thought. That God is doing all he's doing in the church so that he will constitute a people among whom he will dwell. I'm glad he's doing that now, but can you imagine the day he'll do this perfectly in his kingdom? Won't that be a sight to see and a wonder to behold? This kind of appreciation for the church, this kind of value about the church is exactly what prompted Samuel Stone to pen the words to the hymn, The Church's One Foundation. He penned it in 1860-ish. And in his region of gospel witness and churches, there was great division in the church. There was distortion even about the church one man was even claiming the Bible was fictitious in its teachings about the church. And so there were calls to disband. There was a heresy. And in the midst of that, he penned the words to the church's one foundation. And the line is this. 
It's Jesus Christ, her Lord. He was calling those saints to a vertical gaze that mirrors Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. And to close this morning, I want to ask you, if you would, to stand with me and let's sing that song together. So church, would you stand? I want to pray for us, but we're going to sing with passion. This song that I think just re-emphasizes and summarizes again this singular chain of thought about the value and weightiness of God's body, the church. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.